and it's a great blessing to be here and to be here not only as a member of the church, but also serving with Lamb and Lion Ministries. We're a Bible prophecy teaching ministry whose mission it is to proclaim the soon return of Jesus Christ. We're excited that Jesus Christ is coming back and we wanna help other people be just as excited as we are. So I hope my goal is after you leave today, you have a renewed excitement that Jesus Christ is coming for you and greater things lie ahead. Pastor Glenn, when he approached me and Tim, who will be here next week, said he had a great burden. This is how you know you have a wonderful pastor. He has a great burden for you all because he's feeling that during this last year that many of you were losing hope. And he didn't want that. So he said, let's do a series where we teach about the future because the future has more hope in it if you know your Jesus Christ as your savior. For the lost, it's a terrible future ahead, but for us, it's a glorious future, and he wanted that shared with you, and hence, that's why I'm here today. So, switching gears, I'm gonna ask you a question that has nothing to do with hope. How many of you like sports? All right. I can't say I honestly follow it too much, but I do like sports bloopers. Would you be interested if I showed you a few, a few sports bloopers to get us started? Okay. Let's make sure this works. Okay, look at the guy taking the photographs in the next one. This is my favorite. My wife loves extreme sports. How is this for extreme? It's going up's fine, it's the landing that's gonna be a bit of a challenge. I, I gotta admit, I was in track. I was a sprinter and a pole vaulter. And I wasn't a very good pole vaulter because I was terrified that the pole would snap and impale me and I'd be like a bug, you know, hanging up there over the bat. So I didn't do very well, but I never ever did hurdles because yes, that. Well, did you all know that the Apostle Paul was a big sports fan? When you read his letters, it shows that he made a number of sports analogies while he was teaching. And I'd imagine you could probably find him often at the Olympics. Maybe he was sporting a toga. Maybe even look like this. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul explained that sports competitors, they go into strict training. He said they beat their bodies. They want to be the best so they can win the prize. And the prize, of course, was usually a crown of leaves and 15 minutes of fame. Paul pointed out that the crowns, they wouldn't last. The being, of course, leaves, right? They dry out, and eventually their victories would be forgotten. After all, how many of you remember who the Super Bowl champions were of 1952? I was thinking one person. I have no idea. See, it's forgotten over time. So an athlete, they put in a strict training, they beat their bodies, they feel quite beaten after working out, but no matter how much they train, and they get better and better and better, and they hope to master their skill one day, they know eventually that all of us will get what? We're gonna get old. And in getting old, we'll become too feeble, and we're gonna lose those skills that we've developed. I will die, and you will die, and everyone here in this room will die one day. It is inevitable. As a matter of fact, there's only two things inevitable in this world, right? And they are death and taxes, right? I mean, that's it. I can be sure of taxes, but death, hmm. Is that truly inevitable for everybody? Well, would you believe that the Bible teaches that for one particular generation in history, death will not come to them? 
Let's look at what the Bible has to say about that. Now, everything about the future is tied to this one promise that Jesus made. He said, I will come back and take you to be with me. Now, this is Jesus's second coming promise. He came already, but the second coming of the 31% of the Bible, almost a third of the Bible that's dedicated to Bible prophecy, the second coming is the most prolific prophecy in the whole Bible. Matter of fact, there are 500 prophecies in the Old Testament and one in 25 verses in the New Testament that prophesy the return of Jesus Christ at his second coming. Now, how can we be sure that Jesus will fulfill these prophecies? We look at the first coming prophecies. There are 300 general and 108 specific prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ fulfilled how many of them? All of them, 100%. Statistically, that should be impossible. Well, I have a short video here to show you that shows just if you take eight of those 108 prophecies, what those statistics would be like. I'm Nathan Jones with your Bible Prophecy Insight. Can math prove the accuracy of Bible prophecy? Well, let's start with just eight of the 108 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' life. Mathematician Peter Stoner calculated that the probability of all eight being fulfilled in the life of one person is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros. That'd be like filling the entire state of Texas two feet deep in quarters. Mark just one, throw it in. The odds would be like walking for days. And then the very first coin picked up, that would be the one with the mark. Impossible, right? Not if the Bible is truly God's word. To learn more about Bible prophecy, visit us at lamblion.com. People asked me if I got to keep the quarters. I did not. I didn't get to keep. Now, the second coming coincides with the very end of the worst time in human history. It's called the tribulation. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble or Daniel's 70th week prophecy. Jeremiah 30 verse seven says, how awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. And we know because of Daniel's prophecy that it begins when Israel makes a peace covenant with a coming one world ruler who John calls the Antichrist. And it also tells us that this will last seven years. So this tribulation time period, this worst time in all of human history will last for seven years. And the purpose is threefold. Number one, it's time for God to put wrath against the evil of this world. What is God's wrath? Dictionary.com defines it, vengeance or punishment as the consequences for anger. The Bible shows it's like a cup, and as God's anger fills up, once it overflows, then God's acts. acts. Now, it's been thousands of years since the flood, and the anger is just still built. It shows how patient God is, how forgiving God is, but at some point, that cup will overflow, and God will act It'll be a unique time in human history. The tribulation is like the flood was. It's when the cup finally overflowed and it was time for God to deal with all the sin and evil in the world. It's time for God to come and punish evil. 
The second reason is to regather Israel back into the land and force Israel to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. There are many promises that God made to the Jewish people that have yet to be fulfilled. He said a remnant of them, a third of them, are still to come and accept Jesus Christ as Savior, and they will be a priestly people when he sets up his physical kingdom on this earth. And you know how life's got to be sometimes. Life has something to be so rough that it gets you on your knees and finally turns you to the Lord. And the tribulation will be so bad that it will get the Jewish people on their knees and turn to the Lord. It will also, we read how many Gentiles, uh, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, how many of them will come to know Jesus during that time as well. So there will be so many people that will come and to know Jesus as their Savior during that time period. And three, it's Jesus' victory. Jesus promised to come back victorious to defeat evil and set up his kingdom. And that's what the tribulation is at the end, that second coming for Jesus to return, defeat Satan and the Antichrist, and set up his kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice. Well, 21 judgments that the book of Revelation describes. Two earthquakes have flattened the world. Mass wars, including nuclear. Famine, death, most of the world population, and by the end of it, only enough people left to fill a valley. That's how bad it is. And so many people then say, am I going to be in that seven-year tribulation? Am I going to have to live through the wrath of God? Well, what does the Bible say about the church living or not living through the tribulation? Now, when I say church, I'm not talking about this church or the Catholic church. Church overall means everybody from Pentecost uh, up to now or when Jesus returns to take us, that is the church. So if you know Jesus as your savior, you are the church. So let's look at Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So this time of wrath is only for those who are disobedient. Well, who does the Bible say are the disobedient? John three thirty six tells us, whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. So who are the disobedient? Those who've rejected Jesus as their savior, the unsaved. Those are the people that never grabbed hold of Jesus' lifeline of salvation. God's wrath remains on them. Was that the only verse? Oh, let's look at Romans 5, 9. It confirms that believers in Christ will be saved from God's wrath. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. And to wait from his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And Revelation 3, 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So again and again and again and again, these verses make the promise that those who believe in Jesus Christ and have been called Jesus as their savior, their sins are forgiven, they're saved. They are never meant to experience the wrath of God, both on the earth and eternal wrath of God in hell forever. And therefore, the church is never meant to experience the wrath of God during the tribulation. You should get an amen from that. Yeah. Amen, isn't that exciting? Praise the Lord, you're not gonna have to live through a living hellscape like a Terminator movie. It's not gonna happen to you. 
Now, how do we know this? Does the Bible provide examples to kind of back this up? Well, let's look at Enoch, for instance. Do you know that a man named Enoch was taken off this earth before the flood? Hebrews 11:5 says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now Noah was a, a relative, uh, excuse me, uh, Enoch was a relative of Noah, and he was a righteous man, and God took him from this earth physically before the flood came. But he needed people to populate the world. So Noah and his righteous family were taken out of the flood and kept secure while the rest of the earth was deluged. Same thing with Lot. When Sodom and Gomorrah's sexual and violence and all their sins just piled up, God said, I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham begged God, if there's just a few righteous people, will you save those cities? And Jesus said, yes, I will, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And, but there wasn't. It was just Lot and his family. And then Lot's wife, of course, turned back and she was turned to a pillar of salt. There's also Rahab. She was saved from the destruction of Jericho. So there are biblical examples of God's wrath when it's ready to be poured out. It doesn't fall on the righteous. So if Jesus promised to spare from his wrath those who've accepted his lifeline of salvation, then how's he going to do that? Well, we find that answer in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? It was originally written in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. So you have to go to the Greek, and the original Greek for that term caught up is harpazo. Now the Bible was translated into Latin, and the only Bible people had for 1,100 years was in Latin. Harpazo was translated into rapio. Well, when we take the English transliteration, we get the word rapture. It's kind of like this. You like pizza? It's like when you go to the pizza place and they got the pizzas waiting for you and you just grab it, you snatch it, you catch it, you take it. And where do you take it? You take it home. And that's what this passage says that Jesus is gonna do with his church. He's gonna come, he's gonna catch up, he's gonna snatch up, he's going to rapture his church up to heaven before he pours his wrath upon this world. So I can call this the great snatching or the catching up, but it's just easier to say rapture, right? Can you all say rapture? Rapture, yeah, a lot easier, okay. Well, where can we find the texts that support this? We can find the rapture described in, say, for instance, John 14, one through four, where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am you know the way to the place where I am going. Well, where did Jesus go? What was the place that he's preparing for us called? Y'all not sound so sure. Where did Jesus go after he ascended? Right, he didn't go to a space station. He went to heaven, right. Jesus says he's preparing a place for us in heaven, in the Father's house. So that means that our destination, when we will be raptured to heaven, we're told that that's our destination and that we can trust God that he will do this and he will bring us, knowing this, it will bring us hope. We can also go to Luke 21, 36. Jesus said, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. When this verse we're told to stay watchful, to keep an eye out for Christ's return. 
And when we escape the terrible times ahead, that will be the wrath of God, the Son of Man, Jesus himself. So Jesus again says, we will be spared from the wrath of God. Or how about 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57? I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, this passage gives us quite a lot of details about what this rapture is going to be like. For one, no death for a particular generation of Christians. Not everyone will eventually die. We get to, if it happens in our lifetime, and I do believe it will happen in our lifetime, skip that death thing. We get an upgrade, like a 2.0 upgrade. And the dead in Christ, in other words, this is for the whole church, not just us who are alive, but the dead in Christ are resurrected as well. And death, what is the sting of death? It's not the actual death part, right, if you're a believer. It's the, the pain that leads up to it. I, I'm not worried about dying. I'm, worried about, I'm not worried about falling out of that plane with my parachute not working. I'm worried about the landing, right? That's the sting of death. And this is saying that for a particular generation of Christians, they will not experience that sting of death. And when they are, we are raptured, that's the resurrection of the bodies, the human body, right? It can't tolerate it. We'd be like fish out of water in heaven. We would need to have new bodies that could stand before the might and power of God and look upon him face to face. Remember, Moses couldn't look in God's face because the glory of it would have killed him. Likewise, we need new, upgraded, eternal bodies to be able to go to heaven. So our bodies will be transformed. First Corinthians 15 says they are imperishable. In other words, they won't die. They are glory. They're built in glory. They're powerful, and they're a spiritual body. They're physical. You can touch them. You see them. You'll look at me and say, oh, that's Nathan, although I'll hopefully look more like 30 and not whatever I am. 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says, when he appears, we shall be like him, Jesus, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus' resurrected body is the template for our eternal bodies. And that transformation of our bodies will kill the old sin nature. We can try to be as good as good as we can in this earth, but that sin nature, that old man, as Paul called it, lives in us and it needs to die. And that transformation of our new bodies will finally kill that sin nature. It also will happen lightning fast. When it happens, it's like, boom, it's gone. One minute you're there and the next second you're not. It's super fast, like the twinkling of an eye. And it says, now I don't know if it's just believers or the whole world, but it says there was a trumpet from heaven will sound and we will hear it and know that it's about to happen. Maybe for us, time will kind of like slow down a little. I don't know. But this is Jesus's victory. It's his victory over death. His resurrection made it possible. Now, I can explain, I can read, but you know 60% of people on this earth are visual learners. So let me show you what one rendition of what the rapture might look like. You wanna see that? Okay. 
heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. confess a sin. I enjoy showing this video to watch the audience leap out of their chairs. Y'all did pretty well. It was like a five or a six on a scale of one to ten. Not bad. Okay, well, let's look at some other passages that deal with the rapture. Does that kind of give you a, more of a picture of what it might look like? First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 gives us some more details. It says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will be rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up, raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Well, likewise, this passage has a lot of details about what the rapture will be like. For one, it reiterates again that Jesus' resurrection makes it possible for us, his church, to be resurrected as well. It also says that Jesus will come down from heaven, but he will stop in the clouds. This is why it's different than the second coming at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus' feet land on the Mount of Olives and split it in two, and he walks through battle and destroys his enemies. This is Jesus is up in the clouds. He never reaches earth. He calls us up to him, and then with him we go into heaven. Again, there's a loud call. The archangel screams, uh, maybe it's time, or come on up, or you're... The time is now, we don't know what it says, but between the archangel's call and a trumpet, there will be a sound. And it says again, 
that the dead in Christ rise first. Those who got saved during the church age will be resurrected and they will get their new glorified bodies. And where's our destination? It's to go to heaven, to be with the Lord where he lives forever. And that, folks, is meant to give the Christian hope. The knowledge of the rapture is one of the teachings in the Bible that's meant to affect our daily living and give us hope. Well, let's look at the Old Testament. I have a few more verses. Now, the church was a mystery in the Old Testament, but there are some verses that kind of hint about what the rapture would be like. For instance, Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise, and you who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give up her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the bloodshed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. So this Old Testament passage reiterates that God's people will stay in those rooms that we read about in John 15 that that the Lord prepared us. Some people call it our mansions in heaven. There we will wait out in heaven while the seven-year tribulation rages upon the earth. Malachi 3.17 also says, They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. Well, those who are saved are the Lord's. And you know what he calls us? He calls us his treasures. Have you ever thought about yourself as a treasure? In this time where we hear so many people committing suicide, do they not realize their worth and value to God? The fact that he gave them life and died for them. And then he's promised if we put our faith and trust in him that we will be his treasured possession in heaven. Each of you folks who know Jesus as your savior are a treasure to God. Think about that a little bit. Well, I can talk, but I think it's easier to show. So let me show you one more video here that gives kind of an example of what the rapture might be like.
think that my favorite part of that video is when they're painting across the, the crowd and that one woman, she, she, you know, she looks up, she knows it. She's heard the teaching of the rapture and she knows what's come. And it's given her that hope that throughout her life. And now she has the joy of seeing it be fulfilled. Real quickly, folks ask, well, what happens to the Old Testament saints, those who put their faith in God? They're not part of the church, and Daniel 12 promises that they will be resurrected. Their time is at the end of that tribulation at Jesus' second coming. And those who get saved after the church is left, we call those tribulation saints. According to Revelation 20, verse 4, their resurrection is also at the end of the tribulation. So let's put some application to this. While we're waiting for Jesus' return, what we as the church, what should we be doing? Number one, we need to be watchful. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus told us to watch for the appearing of the Lord at any moment. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. I kind of think of it like relatives say they're coming for a big family gathering and they're traveling from far away. And they said, well, I'll be there in the evening. You don't know exactly when. You, you, you do kind of an idea, but not the exact minute. So you put the light out. You got the house cleaned up. You check out the windows periodically. You know they're coming. And that's what Jesus over and over again told his followers. Look out. Keep watchful. You know it's coming. Don't give up. Don't stop looking. It's going to come when you don't expect it, but it will come. So God wants us to be watchful for the Lord's return. It's something exciting to look forward, like Christmas, right? It's, it's something to, to put your hope and, and future into, knowing that Jesus is coming back. Number two, do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. A lot of times people who believe in the rapture, those who object to it will say, well, those people are, are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And they kind of have this idea that we're all sitting around on our suitcases looking up in the sky waiting. But that's not the case at all. I found that people who are expectantly waiting for Jesus to return are some of the most active in their church because they know the time is short and they want to bring as many people as possible as quickly as possible to know the Lord Jesus as their savior. And so they are active. So use whatever skills and talents that the Lord has given you and give that to the service of the Lord in your church and in nonprofit organizations, with your neighbors on the streets. We're to be busy doing the Lord's work, the calling that God gave us. And number three, have hope. While we wait for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the main verse that Lamb and Lion Ministries puts a lot of our faith and hope into. Titus 2.13. The rapture is called our blessed hope. It's meant to give us hope about to the future. 1 Peter 1 says, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. In 1 John 3, But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the rapture, the teaching of Jesus' return to take his church up to heaven, to defeat evil, to return and set up his millennial kingdom, folks, that's meant to give us hope. That's meant even as rough and terrible as this time period seems to be, and it's only going to get worse, I promise you, that we can live by hope unlike anybody else. 
I love this poem by Emily Dickinson. She's an author. She says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Have you, you lived life, and I'm sure all of you had at one point, without hope. You know, it's like an emptiness, a despair inside. But the teaching of Jesus' return is meant to be that bird in the soul that sings and gives you hope even in the darkest hour. That's what it's meant to do. I have one more video to show you. I'm going to let my alter ego sum it up. I'm Nathan Jones with your Bible Prophecy Insight. The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day soon to catch up, to rapture those who have accepted him as Savior. Two people are together and then in the time it takes to snap, one will be left standing. In the blink of an eye, millions will be gone. We'll be taken off this earth to meet Jesus up in the clouds to live with the Lord forever. Those left behind will face the worst period in history, the tribulation. Have you given your life to Jesus today? Will you be part of the rapture? To learn more about Bible prophecy, visit us at lamblion.com. So I'm gonna leave you with this question. Are you ready? What does are you ready mean? The only way that you get to participate in the rapture of the church is to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So when the Bible says, are you ready? It's saying, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you turned to him and asked for forgiveness of your sins? Have you made him the Lord of your life? That's how you get ready. That's how you embrace that hope. And that's how you have eternal life and an eternal future with him. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ today, why are you waiting? I'm sure the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart. Give in to him. He loves you. You're a treasure to him. And he wants you in his kingdom forever. He wants to dwell with you forever, to walk and talk and have fellowship just like the Garden of Eden. So if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your savior today, then pray something from your heart in faith, like, dear Lord Jesus, please, Forgive me of my sins. I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness of those sins. And I believe in you as the son of God and the Lord of my life. Please come save me. And Jesus will do that. The guilt of your sins will be erased. You will inherit eternal life with him and you can claim that blessed hope of the rapture. Thank you.